It's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, I do know a few of you, uh, which makes uh, this a little bit more comfortable. It's like, I know him, I know her. So, so anyway, but it is, it really is a privilege to be with you uh, this morning. And so I'm going to ask that you stand as we read the Word of God. Our text this morning is Psalms 96, so if you'll turn to Psalm 96, I'm not sure if it's going to be on the screen or not, but if not, uh, just listen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along, but I'll be reading from the New American Standard version of the Bible. But Psalm 96, let's read it, or let me read it. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people, peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are extremely grateful for all you do for us. For the opportunity to be here and to, to hear your word read, but also to hear it preached and proclaimed. And Father, we ask even now that you would go before us, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand, thus saith the Lord. Father, may your word be living and active May it accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, that it would not return void. Father, we ask even now that you would speak to me and speak through me. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Oftentimes when we think of this concept of, of missions or world evangelization, we often want to go to the, uh, to the New Testament. We go to passages like Matthew 28 where Jesus says that we're to go into all the world or go into all the nation. Or we'll even go to Acts 1-8 where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the other most parts of the world. Very rarely do we go to the Old Testament to find or we think of the Old Testament uh, as passages that pertain to missions. Well, I think here in Psalms 96, we'll see one of those instances where God talks to us about missions. From this psalm, we will see that God has made us a part of something that's much bigger 
much greater, much grander than ourselves. We'll find and understand that God's called us all to global purposes, to global missions. He's made us to be his hands, to be his feet, to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. And you know, I find it very fascinating that the creator of the universe desires to use me to accomplish his purposes, desires to use you to accomplish his purposes. And when we think of purposes, let us think of it kind of like this. Kind of God gives us all as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ. He gives us this thing or gives us this three-pronged purpose that I believe every Christian is called to. First and foremost, he's called to know God, to become like God, and then ultimately to make him known. Every Christian's been called to this. And so when we think about this concept of making him known to a lost and dying world, we must realize that in order for that to really take place in a significant way is we must find ourselves getting to know him in a real, tangible way. We must find ourselves becoming more and more like him. And when we become like him, we can't help but communicate him to those around the world, to those in our context. So rest assured that knowing Christ and becoming like him ultimately can serve as a springboard for us making Christ known to this lost and dying world. There is a story involving Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was the well-known catcher for the New York Yankees. And uh, he and they were playing, the, he played for the Yankees, they were playing the Milwaukee Brewers, and they were facing Hank Aaron. As you all know, Hank's the, the, uh, the true home run king. Uh, uh, but anyway, at this time, uh, you know, he was the, Aaron was the chief power hitter for the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, Milwaukee Braves. The teams were playing, and as usually, Yogi was, you know, keeping up his ceaseless chatter, you know, trying to pep up his teammates, uh, not only trying to pep up his teammates, but trying to distract the Milwaukee batters. Um, and so he was just going at it. So Aaron comes to the plate, and Yogi tries to distract him by saying, hey, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. Aaron didn't say anything, but when the next pitch came, he hit it into the left field bleachers. After rounding the bases and tagging up at home plate, Aaron looked at Yogi Berra and said, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> here was a man who knew and understood his purpose. He understood that he was... His job was to hit that baseball. And he was not going to allow anything to get him distracted. Well, we've seen that God has given us a purpose in life. The question we must ask is, what are those distractions? What has, how have I been distracted? What's keeping me from fulfilling my God-given purpose of making him known? Well, C.S. Lewis says this, the glory of God and as of ours only means to glorifying him is the salvation of human souls, that's the real business of life. So do we find ourselves giving our time, energy, and effort to the real business of life? Psalm 96 speaks to this real business of life. And it's glorifying God by telling of his glory among the nations. In Psalm 96 this morning, we'll find three points, three main points 
We want to tell, we want to summon, and we want to warn. We want to tell, we want to summon, and we want to warn. The psalmist here in verse 1 says, he begins this great psalm by exhorting the people to sing. And not just to sing, but to, to sing a new song. Not just any song, but a new song. A song that is to be sung for the sake that the, earth, that the whole earth might hear. So when we think about this, we got to realize that, <clears throat> think about this. Have you ever been in the midst of worship? I mean, we, great worship this morning. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate you leading us. But you ever been in the midst of worship and singing unto the Lord, worshiping him, and you wish that some of your lost friends or wish that some of your lost family members, some of your lost coworkers, or just people from other ethnicities, other countries, that you just wished that they were right here worshiping and singing to the Lord sitting next to you and worshiping and blessing the name of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture? Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture? People from every tongue, every tribe, your co-workers, your family members, your, your friends, your neighbors. What a beautiful picture that would be. Well, the psalmist says that this is possible. It's possible for our neighbors and our friends and people from all around the world to join us in worship. He says it's possible. And he says we find it possible because of what's being communicated in verse 2. In verse 3, we see what's necessary. He says there in the tail end of, of, of verse 2, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the people. So here we see kind of the psalmist giving us this antidote that will cause us to, or to help people come into this presence of God and to worship him. And so the first point of our message this morning is to tell. And he gives us clear instructions on what we're to tell. We're to proclaim the good tidings. We're to tell of his glory among the nations and to tell of his wonderful deeds among all the people. This may flesh itself out in many ways. It could mean that you walk across the street. It could mean that you take the gospel next door to your neighbor. It also mean may you, it may mean that you hop on a plane and cross the oceans and go into a culture that you've never been into before. Regardless of the place, regardless of the, the position, we've been commissioned to proclaim. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying proclaim the good news, proclaim good tidings. You may ask, so what is the good news? Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. Someone once asked the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon, 
if he could put in a few words what his Christian faith was all about. And Spurgeon said this, I will put it in four words for you. Christ died for me. It's as simple as that. Christ died for me. That is the essence of the gospel message. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Spurgeon just denoted. It's Christ dying for you. Our job as believers is to propagate, to promote this gospel message in a way that we're telling people from all over the world, telling people of their need for a Savior. And not only telling them of their need for a Savior, but we're telling them what's necessary for them to trust in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the psalmist is telling us to tell, to proclaim. Some translations use the word uh, to declare his glory. Our job as believers is to take this message to a lost and dying world and trust that God would draw them to himself and they would see their need for him and that they would respond and trust. It says, tell of his glory among the nations. Tell of his wonderful deeds among all the people. This salvation that God is offering to us is magnificent. It's superb. You notice the words he says, glorious, wonderful. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us could recount the wonderful deeds. We could go back to, you know, 10 years ago and start counting how God has blessed us, how God's provided for us, how God's taken care of us. We could see those wonderful deeds. But the greatest deed ever performed by God is found in the finish, in the person and work of Christ. The greatest, most wonderful deed that the Lord has allowed us to experience is that in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ that salvation has been made possible. This salvation, this deliverance that the Lord is offering is unlike anything else. It's unlike anything else in all the earth. So listen. Listen to what John Calvin says about this text and this great salvation. When God appears as redeemer of all the world, he gave a display of his mercy and of his favor, such as he had never granted before. The words teach us that we can never be said to have rightly apprehended the redemption worked out by Christ unless our minds have been raised to the discovery of something incomparably wonderful about it. He's saying this is a wonderful salvation. And it's something that we cannot hoard, we cannot hold in. We've been called to, to deliver it, to take it to a lost and dying world. And Hebrews 2, 3 says this salvation is great. It's a great salvation. What makes this salvation so great? Well, look at verse 4 in Psalms 96. The reason this salvation is great is because the Lord is great. We're called to tell the world that the Lord is great and is greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. You may ask, why? Why is he to be feared above all gods? 
because all the other gods are idols. That's what it says in verse 4. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. There's a note in the New American Standard for that word idol, and it says non-existent things. Which all other gods are idols. This salvation is great because our God is great. The second half of verse 5 says, not only is it great, but it talks about this God that we're talking about. He's made the heavens and says splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. God is glorious and there is none like him. There is none like him. None can compare to him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Exodus 15, 11. It says, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? What Moses is trying to say and what Isaiah is trying to say, there's none like him. He's glorious. He's majestic. He's great. Hence, he provides such a great a salvation. I mean, you know how you were before Christ. You know what your life was like before Christ. You know how you've been redeemed. So let's tell it. Let's tell the story. Who are we to tell? It says we're to tell it among the nations. We're to tell it among all people. We're to leave no one out. Not your neighbor, not your co-worker, not any ethnic people group. No one is to be left out. None. This gospel message is to be proclaimed, to be heralded into all the earth. John Piper says this, God is calling us to spread a passion for the glory of God and all things for the joy of all people. So let us, not get stra- let us not get distracted from what God is calling us to. He's calling us to tell, to tell of his glory among the nations. And not only are we to tell of his glory among the nations, but we're to summon, we're to bid, we're to beckon people to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And we see that in verses 7 through 10. We're not just to tell the people or to tell the nations about the greatness of God or the glory of God, but we're to summon them, bid them, beckon them to respond. And not only to respond, but to respond to the greatness of God, respond to who God is and what he desires for them to do. Look at verse 7. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in his holy attire. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We're to summon people to respond to this great salvation 
that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. And the time is now. Today is the day of salvation. When Jesus first came on the scene there in Mark, it says now Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's a sense of urgency. The time is now. We're asking, we're trusting God. This word ascribe, in some translations, you might find the word give rather than ascribe. You might find, and so what the psalm is saying, give to the Lord. And what we're summoning the unbelieving world to do is to give to the Lord, to give their life, to give an offering. Matthew Henry says this, we must give unto the Lord, not as if God needed anything or could receive anything from us or any creature, which was not his own before, but much less be benefited by it. But we must in our best affections, best adoration and services return to him what we have received from him and do it freely as what we give. For God loves a cheerful giver. It is debt. It is rent. It is a tribute. It is what must be paid, and it is not, and if not, will be recovered. And yet, if it comes from holy love, God is pleased to accept it as a gift. What God is saying is we need to give to him what is due to him. Give to him what is due to him. And what we're challenging you to do, what I'm challenging you to do, what the Scripture is challenging us to do, is to challenge our friends, to challenge our families, to challenge our co-workers, to challenge our neighbors, to challenge people from all over the world, from the four corners of the world. This is what we're challenging them to do. We're summoning them to come to faith in Christ Jesus, to give of themselves, to give their life. We're calling for conversions. We're challenging people. We're challenging the nations to come to faith in Christ Jesus to surrender to his lordship. One who has converted to Christ is all about bringing glory and honor to him and to his name. One of the realities of life is that every day, I mean that one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And if we know that to be true, if we know that's going to, that's going to happen one day. Even the non-Christians going to realize that Jesus is Lord one day. So the time is now. There, there needs to be a sense of urgency. Listen to Philippians 2, 9 and 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Abraham Kuyper says this, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Therefore, we must summon, let us summon 
the nations to come to Christ. Let us summon them to trust in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice there in verse 8, he says, bring an offering. We're summoning them to bring their lives to the Lord. Verse 9 says, worship the Lord. Tremble before him. We're summoning them to worship the Lord. We're summoning them to worship him in, in holiness, to fear him, to be in awe of him, to respect him, to revere him, to honor him. That's what we're summoning them to do, to come to that point where they will worship the God that we worship. And they will be able to sing the songs that we sing. So we're summoning them to come. Ultimately, we're bidding them to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we're summoning them to. Why? Why? Well, we see it in verse 10. This is why we do it. Because the Lord reigns. We're summoning all the nations, all the people to acknowledge the sovereign rule of the Lord. And not only to acknowledge it, but to surrender to it. To surrender to him. We're summoning all the nations to experience God's mercy. That was wonderfully displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. At the cross, he died for sinners and made mercy possible for rebellious sinners like you and me. Therefore, we need to be committed to not only telling, but summoning people to Christ. So let us not get distracted from what God's called us to. Let us tell of his glory among the nations. Let us summon the people to be converted and the nations to come to salvation in Christ. We should not only tell, summon, but we should warn. Verses 10 through 13. There's a story uh, in 1969, this little town past Christian, Mississippi. A group of people were preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of a storm named Camille. Were they ignorant of the danger? Could they have been overconfident? Did they let their egos and pride influence their decision? We'll never know. What we do know is that the wind was howling outside the posh Richelieu apartments when the police chief, Jerry Peralta, pulled up sometime after dark, facing the beach less than 250 feet from the surf. The apartments were directly in line of danger. A man with a drink in his hand came out to the second floor balcony and waved. Peralta yelled up, you all need to clear out of here as quickly as you can. The storm is getting worse. But his other... As others joined the man on the balcony, they just laughed, and Peralta ordered to leave. This is my land, one of the men yelled back. If you want me off here, you're going to have to arrest me. Peralta didn't arrest anyone, but he wasn't able to persuade them to leave either. He wrote down the names of the next of kin of the 20 or so people who were there gathered to the party through the storm. They laughed as he took their names they had been warned, but they had no intentions of leaving. It was 10:15 p.m. when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Scientists had clocked Camille's wind speed at more than 205 miles per hour, the strongest on record. Raindrops hit with force of like bullets and waves off the Gulf Coast crested between 22 and 28 feet high. 
News reports later showed that the worst damage came to a little segment of motels and bars and gambling houses known as Past Christian, Mississippi, where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the Richelieu apartments. Nothing was left of that three-story structure but the foundation. All of this could have been avoided had they heeded the warning. Well, you know, one day there's something that's going to come much worse than Hurricane Camille. Matter of fact, of any hurricane for that matter. And that's Christ. Christ is going to come. And he's going to render judgment. Which is much worse than a hurricane. We're to warn the nations. We're to warn the people of an impending judgment. The latter part of verse 10 says this. Indeed, the Lord is he will judge the people with equity. He will judge justly. He will judge with fairness. He can judge because he's the king. And he reigns as we read earlier. Verse 13 says this. He's coming to judge the earth and that he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. So Christ is coming to judge. The Lord is coming to judge. So let us warn our neighbors. Let us warn those around us. Let us warn people from all around the world of this impending judgment. And if we do so, we see rejoicing can be an aspect of what will happen if they would return or surrender their life to Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. The psalmist speaks here poetically or in hyperboles. He says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. What the psalmist is trying to communicate to us is that as we're telling, as we're summoning, as we're warning, that when someone come to faith in Christ, when someone is converted, man, there is rejoicing and there should be rejoicing. He says, let the tree, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let all, and all it contains. Let the fields exult and all that. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. And there won't be literal trees singing. That's why he says he's speaking in hyperboles, poetically. He says, heavens will be glad, earth will rejoice, seas will roar. Even nature rejoices. When Christ returns, there will be great joy for the believer. And we want our friends, we want our families, we want people from all around the world to be there with us. Don't you want to see that happen? Don't you want to see that come to fruition? You want to see everyone that you're aware of, everyone that you know, to experience that same type of joy. But you know what? We don't have to wait for Christ to return to experience that joy. Verse 11 and 12, this rejoicing, as I said earlier, it's a result 
of those who have responded to faith in Christ. And now they can sing along. Now they can worship. They rejoice. We rejoice. In uh, Acts chapter 8, you have the story of, of Philip going to the Samaritans and, and ultimately and then eventually he goes over to the Ethiopian eunuch and, and he shares the good news. And Acts 8 4 says this, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits They were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And then he goes on, and later in the chapter, he leads the Ethiopian to Christ. And it gets to the end of there in chapter 8, and he says, and there was rejoicing. So as we're telling and summoning and warning We do it because we want to see people rejoice. We want to see the world transformed with the gospel. And when the world has been transformed with the gospel, we will rejoice. In the gospels, we find that the angels rejoice when one, when one comes to faith in Christ. Christ is returning. And when he returns, Those of us who know him, we will rejoice. We will sing to the Lord a new song. We will sing to the Lord all the earth. We will sing to the Lord and bless his name. Well, in conclusion, here's the beauty of it all. This mission will be accomplished. Mission accomplished. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There were people from every tongue, every tribe, Every nation. Church, this mission will be accomplished. And the beauty of it all is that, yes, it's going to be accomplished, but God longs for you to be a part of it. Listen to uh, J. Campbell White, the first secretary of the Layman's Missionary Movement. He says, this movement was born among businessmen who were captured by holy ambition to get behind what God was doing in the massive student volunteer movement. Here is what the main leader among laymen said. Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purposes towards the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husk and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. As a church, 
Do not allow the yogi bears of the world to distract you. Commit to tell. Commit to summon. Commit to warn. Remember, God has made you for global purposes. May we see the nation's reach locally, globally. May we see the nation's reach. Consider, consider it a privilege to be a part of God reaching the nations. Consider it a privilege. And ask God, God, what part, what role do you want me to play in world missions? As I said earlier, God is doing something so grand, so much bigger than you, so glorious, and he desires for you to participate in it. This is something, as I said earlier, it's much bigger than you. It's much greater than any of us, greater than any one ethnicity. May we continue to sing to the Lord. May we continue to sing new songs and singing about God's reigning over nations. And may we invite the lost world to join us in singing as we broadcast the gospel. Let's pray.